the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my good friends Mike and Brian are with me today. Mike, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing pretty darn well. Should I ask how you're doing, James? Life's pretty good. Stressed, busy, but it always is at this time of year. It's back to school time for all the kids, and that always makes every weekend and every weekday a rush. Um, But Brian, how are you? I am feeling pretty good, too. Glad to hear. I appreciate you taking time out today from San Diego Comic-Con to speak with us. (laughs) I'm sure you're there Uh, right now recording. No, no. I skipped the Comic-Con because I don't like large crowds, and that is all they have there. (laughs) (laughs) From from what I've read, you're not the only one skipping Comic-Con this year. (laughs) It's funny because I had almost exactly that thought process in real time. Like, wait, he's at Comic-Con this weekend? Wait, he hates crowds. Why? Oh, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I went once, and while it was an interesting and fun experience, it was not my thing. (laughs) So I guess the question, how am I doing today? Uh, Slow on the uptake. (laughs) I can remember when you told me that you went to Comic-Con. I'm like, you did? You did? (laughs) Get over a bit of shock. Yes. I am actually going to be at a, a convention in a couple of weeks. I'm going to SIGGRAPH, which is not to the levels of Comic-Con crowds, but it is still it does still get kind of crowded at times. Now, what is that convention about? SIGGRAPH is the special interest group for computer graphics and interactive design, movies and video games, really, uh, and the technology behind them. It's a professional conference. So less cosplay there, then? A bit. <laughs> Quite a bit. Big nerd convention. For all the, the uber math nerds. I know that's very niche, but that still sounds really fascinating. This is the place that I've talked about in the past where I go to the emerging technology room and everybody there wants to run electricity through my body. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, get your yearly charge. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your levels were getting a little low. Well, since we are all good, let's head to geek out. I'll kick things off. And primarily, like I said... Life's been really busy. It's not left as much time for geeky hobbies and interests as I would prefer. But I really have been enjoying immensely the new season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And it's just been so much fun. It's scratching that Star Trek. It's so good. It's some of the best Trek we've had in years. I can't go on about the cast. They've assembled such a great ensemble. The writers have really given everyone time on the show to grow, to show their skill. I mean, like the first episode of the second season, the person usually seen as the primary character, the captain, Captain Pike, I think he was in the episode for all of three minutes. Yeah. And it did not hurt. Like, he's phenomenal, but it did Mm -hmm. not hurt the show for the lack of it. Not at all. But I thought it was a strange choice that he was in it so little. But then I read that the writers did that on purpose. They did that for Ansel Mount because he and his wife just had a baby. Oh, Oh. good for them. Like, on all levels. Yeah. Yeah. Great feel-good story. And it gave everyone a chance to shine. They carried the episode so well. As of the time of this recording, about halfway through the season, coming up next is a crossover episode with Lower Decks. 
which <laughs> yeah how is that gonna work you know look we it, look lower decks has already had a genetically engineered large massive air quotes dog so all bets are off like anything can happen tendy did something i don't know now there's a time warp well I think what Brian's referring to, one's real life, one's animated. And one's animated. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how the characters from the animated show work. And going the other direction, I could see. Right. They're, no, they're, they're going to Star Trek that stuff. That's how they're going to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> well, look, you just already... made that an action verb. But no, here's where they got really lucky, because I doubt they planned ahead. The voice actors who portray these characters look enough like their animated counterparts that they yeah. just used oh. them. They took the guy who plays Boimler, they dyed his hair purple, uh, put him in a Star Trek uniform and threw him in. <laughs> I saw like a one minute sneak peek for it. Sometimes I always get nervous when I know that Star Trek is going to do comedy because <laughs> it can be done within the right context. So I'm going to have faith in the writers. My faith has been rewarded these last couple of seasons, so I'm going to put my trust in them. But then they put out another teaser for the episode after that, and it's literally Star Trek the musical. Look, I mean, look, I'm going to ask you one question that I hope will put all of this into into some amount of perspective. Why does God need a starship? If Funny enough, that, that's the big coral ending. Act. <laughs> <laughs> if you Why made it all God the way, need a starship. <laughs> Special guest director Andrew Lloyd Webber. This production is going to be huge. I mean, if you going to light up the warp core. Oh my gosh! Why are there people on rollerblades? Sorry, Starlight Express reference. That's no. That's I just don't think I was ready for this episode of Geek at Arms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody was ready for this to be a content warning at the beginning. Um, Nobody's ready for this episode of Geek at Arms. Viewer discretion is advised. No one's going to be ready not for viewers. this episode of Star Trek. You. When I saw the teaser coming up on YouTube and I heard the musical tones, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the Star Trek, the, the original like theme music that da, 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 da. But people are singing it. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then that quickly turned to, oh, Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, this could absolutely be garbage on fire. But once again, faith in the writers. I mean, shoot, Buffy the musical should not have worked. It's true. Fair. After watching the teaser, I thought, I bet the young lady who plays Ahura has got some pipes on her. I'll bet you she's mm. going to belt it. It's going to sound fantastic. So um, this is going to be a wait and see. Next episode of geek at arms i'll i'll talk more about this because i mean this is just so like not typical trek but you know what that's not necessarily a bad thing and if any show could pull it off this one could so like it would not work on discovery not at all um <laughs> they did have that one episode of picard there was that one episode of picard uh it wouldn't have worked on deep space nine not at all uh, if they tried it on enterprise i wouldn't have watched it no, um, they could have done it on Deep Space Nine because they had that whole lounge singer yeah. subplot. Yeah. Oh, Vic Fontaine. 
I could definitely see Miles and uh, the Doctor uh, Bashir. You know what? I changed what I said earlier, Brian. You're right. I know I want to see that that episode. <laughs> they could have come on like, like backup lounge singers, and well, no, wait. In one of the last episodes of the last season, Avery Brooks, Cisco, oh, that's uh, Cisco, that. that's right. He did came up me. with Vic, and they sang "The Best Is Yet to Come." I mean, and even if this isn't great, it's it's one episode, not a trajectory for the show. So true. Mm-hmm. The other thing that has been taking up a lot of my attention and interest is I have talked a lot on this podcast about my love of pocket knives, tools, and EDC, everyday carry, that whole world. And I decided that I wanted to show my interest in that and also love of many things geek and how they can cross over. I decided to start up an Instagram a sentence I never thought I would say. <laughs> but I did it kind of in conjunction with Geek at Arms. And so now if you go to Instagram, you can search for Dice Night EDC. And my nice little bio photo is the knight from the Geek at Arms logo, which I rendered into Hero Forge's Create a Miniature World. And one of these days, I'm actually going to print out. Mm-hmm. I'm still just living in jealous resentment of you came up with a user named Dice Knight and I did not. <laughs> <laughs> you can use him. Dice Knight is multi-usable. So Thank you. I did. Take him. Use him. Oh, you already did. <laughs> <laughs> I just started it about a month ago. So, you know, still building up posts, doing it occasionally from like knives, EDC things. About 22 followers at the moment. That's 21 more than I thought I would have. And it's not something I'm like putting a major amount of work and focus into. It's just as geeky things and knife world things come together, I post about them. Like a couple of years ago, I wanted to get some Nerf guns for the boys and for myself as well because I'm Nerf guns. <laughs> so I went on to like Facebook buy, sell, trade, Facebook marketplace And, of course, there's always going to be a dozen people out there selling their kids old Nerf guns. So, yeah, for like 60 bucks, I got like eight Nerf guns. One of them was pretty well jammed up. But thanks to YouTube and some precision tools I have, I was able to take it apart, reset it, put it back together, and then discovered that one of the pieces inside is actually defective. So a replacement's on the way. Oh, well, that's good. Don't lie, James. You took the spring, you replaced it with something stronger, so now it's accurate to 300 yards. <laughs> and goes 250 feet per second. <laughs> we lose more children that way. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody that I was talking to, one of their kids' toys broke, and she was a nurse. So she took it to work and x-rayed the thing to find out what was wrong with it. Wow. And that's why I thought that story was going to go. <laughs> but yeah dice night edc on instagram check it out for all things geeky and knifey and stabby so on so forth so who's next i'm just trying to imagine if like geeky knifey stabby is is going to be a new daft punk song but i know anyway (laughs) i submitted that for the sca's new motto but i haven't heard back from the board of directors yet i don't think that's gonna i don't i wouldn't hold your breath on them 
But anyway, moving on. Now, who's next for Geek Out? Definitely not ready for this week. <laughs> I'll go next since I'm clearly not ready. Uh, yeah, this uh, this month, uh, my reading has actually suffered because I've been having a lot of eye strain. But that means that there's lots of room for audiobooks. And um, Ashley from MinMax a, a long while ago had recommended uh, We Free Men to Me uh, by Terry Pratchett. It was after I'd read Good Omens, and I'm like, well, this Terry Pratchett seems like a, a pretty good guy. Uh, what what else has he written, may I ask? And then when I opened that valve on the internet, it was like trying to drink from the fire hose. <laughs> so I closed that valve again and asked Ashley. And she's like, try We Free Men. And read it, thought it was absolutely grand fun. Uh, the premise is that uh, Tiffany Aching is a young girl who is discovering uh, that she is a witch and also has uh, has a developing relationship with some Pictsies, some little blue tattooed men who have um, curious sets of, of values and manners, including uh, stealing anything that isn't nailed down. And if it is nailed down, uh, you're likely to have the nail stolen as well. Um, so... It's it's a series of of her adventures of being a witch and the relations between her and these very wild wee men uh, who say Crivens a lot and uh, and many references to their kilts and so forth. Uh, so they're they're depicted as as really off color without ever actually in in plain English being off color because they have so much uh, uh, specialized dialect and speech. But it's just such amazing audio fiction that I I picked up some of the others, Hatful of Sky and I Shall Wear Midnight, and think that there is actually one. Oh, The Wintersmith I'm missing on my list. Writing and, all of these titles down as you speak them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I what was that last one? The Wintersmith? The Wintersmith. I'm I trying to remember the title. Oh that my gosh. So good. Yeah. In The Wintersmith, I believe that's the third third book in the series i think that uh that hatful of sky is the second in the third the wintersmith is is basically the old man winter of of discworld and uh tiffany aching manages to insert herself into the mythology and narrative uh quite accidentally and uh since she's a witch she's uh she's told by the other older witches well okay you you started your problem you need you need to solve your own problem and so the wintersmith, uh, essentially, as I said, old man winter, uh, takes a fancy to her and is courting her. And he doesn't understand humans and humanity well enough to do that without freezing everybody to death in the process. <laughs> um, and he pieces together like bits and pieces of what humanity is and tries to make a human and become a human so that he can court her. And so the, the whole thing is just really everything that he writes is it, in my experience so far being uh, good omens and the Tiffany aching uh, novels is delightfully witty. Uh, and the way that he depicts witches in, uh, in disc world is really interesting. Uh, have, have either of you read many or any of the disc world novels? I read The Color of Magic, but that was, that was it. Okay. The very I have, first one. Yeah, I have not read any of them. The What's fascinating is that they the, the witches do very little by magic and a lot 
by elbow grease and uh, and wisdom and wits. And they kind of act like, uh, I, I would say, community chaplains more than anything. So there's uh, the better part of witchcraft is, okay, there's there's uh, an old man who's who's got one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel. Uh, and he's, um, you know, he, he can't do anything for himself, but somebody needs to feed him and take care of them. So a witch is going to fly over on a broomstick, give him some food, take you know, trim his toenails, make sure that he's he's smarted up enough and maybe take some payment in the form of a couple of potatoes and used clothing. Uh, so that's just kind of kind of the modality of witches. If someone is dying, often they'll be by their bedside and guide them to and through the door of death. So there's there's not a lot of grandiose magic being done because the witches can do magic that is not their way. Like they, the better part of witchcraft is not is not the magic e bits. So it, they're really fascinating in the way that they've depicted these relations between uh, these witches and this. Uh, in this young woman becoming a witch uh, through the novels is, is just really, uh, really compelling. How do you find his, in the, the uh, project books that I've read in the past, uh, only the one disc world. And then there was another one that I can't remember a trilogy that I read. I found him to have this kind of continuous and pervasive uh, contempt of people of faith. That just really put me off of him. Is is that pers persist in those? Do you think I can see a character where uh, in in those four books I can see a character where that rings true. Uh, so I think that there is. I think that in uh, in the book uh, I shall wear midnight. There is some of that insinuation that uh, witches are. Um, Witches are kind of perceived uh, as you might expect during the height of the satanic panic that, okay, they're, they're evil. They're, you know, they're, you're, you're doing one of those things. You must be one of those evil individuals who are just foul and filthy and, and, and corrupting society. Um, but other than those few instances, I haven't seen it in, uh, in the Tiffany A. King books. I, I think that there was one individual who was a person of faith and prayer and she was an awful human being. And yeah, I can see how that is a real depiction of humanity. I don't think that that was necessarily a theme in the books that I necessarily picked up on. Like, well, maybe I'll give them a try. I really enjoy Pratchett's style and his sense of humor, but uh, those ones that I read, it was just like, I feel like he's just dumping on me personally all the time. <laughs> And so I, did, I couldn't enjoy them as much as I wanted to. I mean, and that might be an aspect of what of 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 his perspective. I'm not sure that they just haven't become particularly pervasive in in these books. So, yeah, I mean, I would give it a shot. The other thing that's kind of on my geek radar is um, my my family had just taken off for a week on vacation. Uh, I asked if I could come and they said no. Um <laughs> That left me alone in the house. Now, you may ask, was that an accurate depiction of that conversation? The answer to that is also 
No, but it's the <laughs> false narrative that we're presenting as to why I was alone in a house for a week. Um, we'll have your back in this, Mike. Don't worry. How dare they? I can't believe that. You poor man. I mean, when Kaja hears this episode, you should have my back, which will be able to be seen from a distance of about three and a half miles, because I'm going to have to get a good head start before she hears it. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have Joy make out the guest bed. Is Mike coming? Oh, he'll be landing any moment. <laughs> Wait, he's flying? No, Kaja kicked his butt so hard. He's going to be landing here in a minute. Um, no, the uh, the real reason is just too long and boring to actually explain to the listeners. So we're, we're going to skip it with a, with a wonderful false narrative. Um, I decided to pick up the Unmatched Digital Edition. Um, Unmatched is a board game that I really, really, really love. But I don't get a lot of opportunity to play it. Um, it's a two-player game. And so I only play it periodically with my family when they're in the mood for a one-on-one -on -one quick combat miniatures game. And when I say miniature combat, I know that that is bringing to mind a lot of uh, Warhammer and um, Star Wars Legions. And it, there's there's a 100,000 games out there that you can sink all manner of money customizing and uh, and continually updating as everything becomes obsolete when the next set comes out. And this is none of those things. Unmatched allows you to take, it's an asymmetrical game. So you pick one fighter and you have a deck and uh, you bring that to a battle mat and they are sold as standalone sets. So none of them really go obsolete, really. Uh, they just have more that's released that's compatible, and it's all one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you can do team play in terms of two-on-two. -two. And I believe that Mike Perna, um, His Excellency, uh, had mentioned it when he came on a long <laughs> while ago in terms of something he was looking forward to. And it's been it's been a solid addition to, to my game cabinet. But the problem is that when there's nobody to play with, uh, it loses some of its luster. Uh, so the digital edition takes a good number of the of the public domain figures because they have licensed IP sets and they have public domain figures and it ports them to an electronic version where you can play versus a computer. Uh, you can also play online. I tend not to because I tend not to go competitive online because that's that's not a space I want to live in. And uh, and so. Uh, it's basically you, you have a digital, uh, a, a digital opponent, and it's a solid 20, 30 minute game. Uh, and it's, it's fun. It's, it's a good representation of that game in a digital environment. I can't imagine how they could have possibly have done it better. Um, with the exception of sometimes the navigation is a little bit, a little bit wonky. And that's, that's about, that's, that's my biggest criticism. So they can't do any of the the IP'd, like the the Marvel licenses. They can't do uh, the Bruce Lee license. They can't do the Jurassic Park license for the digital edition, but all of their public domain. So uh, Alice from Alice in Wonderland, Little Red Riding Hood, Beowulf, King Arthur, Medusa, the Invisible Man, Dracula, they're all in there. And it's uh, it's been a fun play. So I've enjoyed it. So you can check out the Unmatched Digital Edition uh, on Steam, on Switch, uh, and I believe it's it's a multi-platform release. 
And apparently we don't have any questions about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was not a good dialogue one. Wow. Yeah. Should have, it just uh, sounds fun. I mean, it is. I mean, if you all want to come over and play, you're more than welcome. But, you know, although that is a thing is that since you can do online opponents, that might be worth. Um, if it was my friends playing, I might I might be willing to do that, um, do that yeah. in online play. So that about wraps it up for my geek out. Well, then I guess it's my turn to pick it up. I've been uh, streaming on Twitch again, but not under my own account. Uh, my friend Mogu has decided that she wanted to play Phasmophobia with friends. And so she's put together a little crew and we, uh, we do that on most Mondays. Uh, and Phasmophobia is a game in which you are a ghost hunter. You go into a, a house that's haunted and you've got little bits of gear that you can try and use to, to detect the ghost. And you try have to try and identify what kind of ghost it is. And for some bonus things, you can get like pictures of footprints or of, it'll leave a bone somewhere in the, in the place. You find the bone and take a picture of that. And there are daily quests that you can get. But eventually you make the ghost angry enough that it locks the door and it tries to hunt down and kill you. Uh, and Mogu is, she has a very low tolerance for horror. And yet this is her idea. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. We've also played uh, a clone of Phasmophobia called Demonologist, which is a little nicer in terms of uh, the visuals, but doesn't have quite as much variety in gameplay. And I'm generally pretty stoic, but every once in a while it, it gets me and I'll, I'll shout or uh, get a little bit too nervous. But that's been interesting, weird fun. And her channel is called Magic Mogu, M-A-G-I-C-M-O-G-H-U. M-O-G-H-U. Yeah, Magic Mogu. So if you're interested in watching us scare each other silly, then that happens on Mondays, 2 o'clock my time, which I guess is 5 o'clock Eastern time. And you can figure out Mountain and Central. I'm not going to do the math. So how silly do you get scared? Because once you said scared, <laughs> silly, now now I have a mental picture. <laughs> well, I, I believe the uh, the quotation most recent most recently that I gave was okay. So are your hands in the air as much in the way of a wacky waving inflatable arm man? Because that just completes the image. Mine aren't no, but uh, I tend to like grip my mouse very hard. And if I threw my hands up, I'd smack my microphone. And yeah. Hopefully I didn't disconnect it there doing that. No, you did not. <laughs> but I reject your reality and replace it with my own mental picture. Okay. Well, then next time I'll be sure to uh, get an inflatable wavy arm man <laughs> thing going. Just just get an inflatable arm man for all those fear moments and then just have it inflate for the... <laughs> right. It'll just be sitting in my chair. I'll actually be off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> I've also been playing a game. Uh, I had one on my, my wish list for a while. Something that just popped up in my, hey, you might like this. And I looked at it and thought, hey, I might like that. So I put it on my wish list. And it's called... Uh, An appropriately Space... named wish list. Yes. I called Hard Space Shipbreaker. And it came up in the Steam Summer Sale for half price. So I was like, oh, hey, this is a good opportunity. Get another game. And it's a job simulator in which you are... Uh, junking old spaceships. You go in with your laser saw and you cut the ship apart and you've got to make sure that you don't explode the reactor. 
and it's just a a fun kind of relaxing, usually relaxing game. Every once in a while, it gets stressful, but because there's no opposition, it's not like there's aliens coming to try and stop you from dunking the starship. It's just, hey, this is a dangerous job, and every once in a while, you get incinerated by the reactor. <laughs> uh, it's just like my job. Yeah, you know. <laughs> the premise of the game has this uh all of the the ship breakers have clones so if you die they just spit out another clone of you so it's it lets you keep going even though you've you've died unless you put it on the the roguelike mode which i'm doing right now i've gotten almost to the end of the game without losing a single life it's it's a lot of fun just float around in space and cut up a spaceship it's got this nice kind of country-ish uh, music track going on in the background. For some reason, though, like the, the soundtrack that's in my head is from Titan AE with Cosmic Castaway. But that's just me. That's fine. Yeah, well, you know, that would be a, a good uh, substitution to make if you wanted to see Co- Cosmic Castaway was wasn't like the hard rock one, was it? I mean, none of those things were ballads, but no, I yeah. don't. It wasn't it wasn't one of the harder ones. I was, I was thinking of the, the song at the very beginning when he's actually doing the ship breaking. It's like, yeah. that might be a little bit, make me try to go too fast and I'd make mistakes. <laughs> and then it would be exactly like Titan AE. Right. <laughs> the way that you describe it, Brian, it actually sounds very calming, relaxing, and cathartic. It is. So it's a lot of fun. And I put 90-some hours in it, I think, uh, last time I looked at Steam. Is it Steam only, or do you know if it's available on console? I don't think it's available on console. Uh, it is available outside of the Steam store, but it's still a PC game. I don't remember having seen anything about consoles. Now, James, is it's not multiplayer, then... <laughs> since it's not multiplayer, I wouldn't necessarily have noticed, because the main question there is, oh, can I cross-play? But since multiplayer isn't available, cross-play is irrelevant. Doing a quick search on the PlayStation app. Oh, Hard Space Shipbreaker. It is on PS5. Nice. I'm going to try that. I really think I am going to have to try this. One thing I really wanted, wish that someone else would do, I mean, I want to do it myself, but I don't have the time or energy, is a Babylon 5 mod. Because I would love to be cutting up some of those Earthlore ships. And that brings me to the end of my geek out. Before yours ends, Brian, I do have to ask. Have you picked up any of the Lord of the Rings Magic the Gathering cards yet? I have. I I bought uh, the collector's packs came down to less than $40. <laughs> so I bought two of those. And you're, you're going to be jealous because in one pack, a single booster, I have a foil Bill the Pony and a full frame Sam Gamgee. Nice. <laughs> this is a a perfect booster pack. I mean, sure, they're both uncommons, but... Okay, so I have a... It's not full... Well, it's almost full frame, but it's a uh, Samwise the Stout-Hearted. And he was right in front of the legendary Saradoc, Master of Buckland. Whoever the heck that is. <laughs> but I will say, I've only picked up a few packs, but I'm really tempted and i'm not just tempted i'm going to go and buy more because from what i do have i'm going to build an int deck so james to answer your question as to who is that uh who is that guy 
Um, I've also been listening to the Silmarillion, and I can confirm that I cannot keep those names straight, so I wouldn't know anyway. <laughs> Eventually, I'm probably going to buy an entire box of set boosters, but I'm going to wait for the, the prices to come down. I'll tell you what, if they come down by September, maybe I'll go halfsies on one with you. Oh, that's an idea. Although, I'm going to be flying, and I don't know if I want to carry half a box of... Uh, <laughs> Magic cards. Do you have I mean, anything that's... to check? Yes, but it's going to be a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> the TSA is going to say that's super sus anyway, so you better not. <laughs> well, I think that will wrap up our geek out. So let's head to our film club movie. This episode, we're taking a look at the 1979 The Frisco Kid. Starring Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford. Hmm. What samurai film was this based on? <laughs> well, we did uh, assert that uh, a lot of Westerns are based on samurai films, but not all Westerns are based on samurai films. Okay. Funny well, enough, in an interview, Gene Wilder revealed it was The Hidden Fortress. I'm still trying to make the connections. <laughs> he may have been lying. Well, you just take out all the stuff about the samurai and the princess, and you mm -hmm. just got those two guys. I, wow. There it is. I don't know how I didn't see that earlier. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is that is a lot right there. I mean, okay. it's it's not entirely outside the realm of of historical probability because the I mean, not during the samurai, but during the Meiji Restoration, I believe, of the first Jewish settlement in Japan was in 1869, like not long after the events of this film, which were set in 1850. Oh, wow. So, we're really deep diving into this. Holy yeah. cow. I mean, like, please continue. But... <laughs> you, you brought this, this is, film. This is not what I was expecting. <laughs> Look, you brought this film to Geek at Arms. What did you think would happen? I did not bring this film to Geek at Arms. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Who brought this film to Geek at Arms? Guilty. Okay. <laughs> so, Brian, usually we begin with the question, why this movie? I think I think that we yeah. have another question before Brian, we get to that one. Why this movie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, on paper, this looks like a possibly hilarious comedy western. Or a disaster. It's got Gene Wilder, Harrison Ford. He's riding high on his uh, Han Solo plane. A rabbi traveling through the Wild West. If you added a cameo of Mel Brooks as a Catholic monk, this could have been comedy gold. Well, the why is because when I brought up that we were going to be doing a trilogy of western films for Film Club... My friend, Big John Rizel, said, ooh, you should watch The Frisco Kid. And he described it to me. I said, that sounds delightful. Okay. And so I had never seen it either. And so I was in the same boat. I was like, oh. wow, this is a movie. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and then say, so the, so the answer to that is, it's a listener request. Well, I mean, how do you not honor that? Seriously. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. At first, when I was watching this, I was like, Brian, what did I just watch? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm as I told you all before the show, I'm going to be leaving most of the review to you two because I'm still trying to figure this movie out. No, but there's actually this is the thing is that there's actually a lot of heart here. Like this had a lot of room to go wrong. I mean, if you say Gene Wilder and Western, I say, oh, no, not again, because there was <laughs> that other one that we're going to treat like Voldemort. And we're not we're not going to say that thing's name. Right. Am I right? 
I uh, hadn't intended to, no. Okay, good. Then we're just going to Voldemort that other movie. Um, but there's actually a lot of heart in this film. Like, I'm actually surprised that it got made. Just with the dynamics this movie was putting together. Because there's I actually think that there's a, a lot of good stuff here. Yeah, and I don't want to get get too down on it. It's it is a product of its time. Films from the seventies have a different kind of pacing, uh, pacing, yeah. aesthetic expectations. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the aesthetic, I wanted to ask you, Brian. I figure you'd be the person most likely to know. This movie came out in seventy nine. But as far as the look of the film and how they shot it, it felt like something that came out in like 1969 or early 70s. Yeah, part of that is uh, the sensibilities of the director, uh, Robert Aldrich. This was his second to last film. He was at the very end of his career. Oh, OK. So kind of almost set his at ways. the end of his life. And so he'd been used to he did Flight of the Phoenix, the Dirty Dozen, The Longest Yard. And it has a lot in common visually with those. And uh, I think he'd picked a cinema. I didn't look to see who the cinematographer was, but he picked a cinematography probably that he was familiar with and comfortable with. And that cinematographer picked a film stock he was familiar with. So it's a lot grainier than the other stuff that we see in the late seventies. So, you know, choice of camera, choice of film and the visual style. And probably a little bit also what influenced all of that is that this movie was in development heck for several (laughs) years. Yeah. I think this script was originally pitched in like 1971 or something like that. Wow. It took many years to get made and it went through rewrite after rewrite. And I think that's contributes a little bit to the, the center of the movie feels like six different people wrote it because at least six different people wrote it. (laughs) And so I think a lot of that contributes to it not feeling quite finished which is is weird to say that a movie that was in development for seven years is not finished. <laughs> but, you know, Gene Wilder passed on the script at least twice. He read it and said, no, no, I don't want to do this. I've already done that other movie that we're not going to name. Uh, I don't want to do it again. But eventually it got rewritten to the point. I think they gave him the authority to, to rewrite some of it, which shows mm-hmm. uh, the character of Avram, I think, probably largely came out of Wilder's pen. Just his understanding of Jewish culture. Which he was raised Jewish, so that, mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. it's not like this is an, a complete outside perspective here. When watching the movie, I was really surprised by Gene Wilder. I thought, he's really got acting a rabbi down, the Yiddish, all of it. He's really good at it. And after a moment of Google, I found out, oh, his father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, and his mother was descended of that, and he had a bat mitzvah when he was 13. Okay, that explains everything. Yeah, there's a lot of explanation there. Uh, yeah, he wasn't a practicing religious Jew, but he did thoroughly understand that culture and the, the trappings thereof. Before we get too far into this, we should probably give just a quick snippet of what this story is to our viewers, because I'm going to bet that most of probably them... Probably nobody has seen it. Right. <laughs> Uh, essentially, what you have is this character, Avram, uh, Avram who is uh, a close 88th in his uh, rabbinic class of 89 individuals. <laughs> and in San Francisco, there is a congregation that needs a rabbi and a Torah. So he is being dispatched from Poland 
uh, to land in Philadelphia and then make his way all the way to San Francisco, where he he will be their new rabbi. The bulk of the film happens between Philadelphia and San Francisco after he's been robbed, dumped, and then uh, and then sort of adopted by this bank robber portrayed by Harrison Ford. And you have this this buddy dynamic that's developing over the course of all these misadventures uh, that this rabbi has as he's trying to make his way to to San Francisco. Is that a fair fair summary here? Yep. Sounds good. good sounds, sounds about right. Okay. So, getting into that, is there anything more that we want to say about the film craft in terms of how this was made? Um, I don't know about how it was made, but I did want to talk a little bit more about genre. Yeah. Because you, you did mention that it's, it's really a buddy story mm-hmm. of the, the bank robber and the rabbi. And that's really, it's genre more than being a Western. It's got the Western trappings and a lot of the tropes of the Western, but the storyline really reads as more of a romantic comedy. I mean, you look mm. into Harrison Ford's eyes and how could it not be a romantic comedy? <laughs> and it even so ends handsome. in a wedding. It's, yeah. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. But that whole thing of we've got these two people and we know that they're going to wind up being together, not like romantically in this case, but friends at the end of the movie. But they're going to spend the entire time bickering and finding reasons why they can't be friends. And that's the that's the romantic comedy formula. Hmm. I mean, see, for me, I'm, as I've said on the air a number of times, that my general exposure to to Westerns was uh, when I grew up, I, I watched a lot of the cartoon Lone Star uh, as a kid. Uh, so are you uh, <laughs> thinking maybe Brave Star? Brave Star. Oh, Brave Star. You're right. Lone Star is a kind of tick. Never mind. All right. We're in a, <laughs> but I also did watch the tick. So but we're not going to get into that now. Um, the side note, I've been showing my daughter cartoon intros from 80s and 90s cartoons recently on youtube (laughs) and the nostalgia factor has been high in my house but continue (laughs) and so for me like not really knowing what makes a western like okay somebody jumped off a moving train uh they got chased by native people they had a showdown uh so that that ticks all the boxes for me Mm -hmm. uh so what i'm hearing you say is like this is this is set in the 1850s, or actually, it is set in 1850 in the Old West, but these things a Western do not make. In terms of, if you want a formalized definition of Western from the perspective of film criticism, then sure. But, you know, with every film, you can't really pigeonhole it into a specific genre. Every movie is a lot of different things. I mean, you could look at this as the romantic comedy, you can look at it as the fish out of water story. You can look at it as a Western. It's got all of those things in it. It's not just one, and it's not absolutely not one of them. Mm-hmm. If that made, I don't think that made sense grammatically. <laughs> but it made sense on the ear. Like it, it felt good in the ear. So we're going to mm-hmm. run with it. Okay. Our listeners will nod in approval, I'm sure. But I do want to mention that there's a lot that we could gripe about this movie. And I'm going to do all of them now. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm joking, uh, partially. But this is purely personal opinion. But I really feel that while Robert Aldrich is an excellent director, he's done fantastic films, this film could have benefited from someone else doing it. Mm -hmm. The the pacing struggled. 
And while the script did get clunky in places, which is what happens when you have six to 12 people who have had their hands on it, I think a lot of that could have been worked around if the actors had been given proper direction. Because, I mean, Mm. on paper, it looks like this should work. I mean, especially, Brian, you talked about how two people from different worlds developing a friendship. If there's someone who I would think is fantastic at that, it's Gene Wilder. And put him along with Harrison Ford, I think that it could have been so much better if they had had a different director. One of the stories that I've heard, that I read as I was doing the research was that uh, Aldrich really wanted John Wayne, but uh, the studio wouldn't pay for John Wayne. He was (laughs) a huge star at that point. It was the very end of his career. That would have made a very different movie. Yeah. And so he was salty every time Ford said, yeah, every time he looked at me, he thought, I could just see in his eyes. I wish you were John Wayne. And so he just effectively ignored Ford. Oh, and that's sad. Yeah. So I think there's, there's something to that. I think of a director who hadn't already had his heart set on an actor. He couldn't get might have uh, taken a bit more care with the film. Yeah. I mean, though, I'm kind of happy that we had Harrison Ford in this film because there's some things like, I'm not a huge john wayne aficionado but there are some things that i cannot imagine john wayne have have done terribly well like i can't imagine him having some of the one of the things that was charming about about the character of tommy was that he had kind of a whimsical and clunky bravado like he was like Mm. i don't want to say the character was goofy but there there was a comedic element to him that I've not seen John Wayne do do comedic in the same way that you can have kind of the smart aleck comedy of 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 Harrison Ford. And also I I would not have nearly so much appreciated uh the line in the mouth of John Wayne, I don't like the odds, knowing that next year there is a film in which Harrison Ford would say, Never tell me the odds. <laughs> yeah. It also would have changed the dynamic considerably because John Wayne was old by that time. You have these two guys, and uh, Wilder was was a bit older than Harrison Ford, but not mm-hmm. hugely, I don't think. Yeah, he was 49 at the time of this movie. Yeah, and so I think him, and of course he's playing no. a just out of Hebrew school, <laughs> out of rabbi school yeah, character. Yeah, that, that so. threw me to, I'm not 49, 46, but I mean... That threw me too. You look at him, and now he's got the full beard and everything. But you can you can see the lines on his face, yeah. and I think is he supposed to be playing a younger rabbi? He got his education. I have no late. idea how long it takes to go through rabbi school. Although at the beginning of the rabbi. movie, all those guys around the table, they're all in their younger thirties. It's just that class is really hard. Living in <laughs> Poland, that's the toll it takes on you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've got it. The prequel is him trying to get to school. And that's going to take years. Uh, (laughs) He befriends a Bolshevik along the way. (laughs) Oh, gosh, this is turning into worse than the Indiana Jones Chronicles. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. Can we talk about, I mean, because this movie could have gone really, really, really awful. I mean, we're talking about a fish out of water a Polish rabbi coming to 1850s America. And this could have been really, really cringe. Yeah, they could have played up the stereotype of a Jewish rabbi so horribly 
But to this film's credit, they didn't. Yeah, they, Maybe that's why Wilder turned it down twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, if you read uh, contemporary criticisms of the film from the Jewish American community, the the opinions are all over the place. Like there is not a single unanimous voice on what the reaction to this film is. So take that for what it is. We're going to be looking at some of some of the more positive aspects of this film while I, I don't want to say we're we're just gonna ignore some of the, the, the criticisms, but none of us have the grounding to sufficiently address this film as a whole. You can find a lot of uh, representation of Jews in film, positive and negative and uh, indifferent, but very, very few of them really show Judaism, you know, as it's experienced by a person. And of those, I can't think of another one that shows the Jew in the West. I mean, it's not a, an idea that you really have. You you think of a, a Jew in film and you're almost always going to be in New York. Or bombarded um, with stereotypes or both. Right. And so one article that I read by, uh, I don't apologize for mispronouncing your name, Sharia Rabin uh, for the Jewish Book Council. Uh, and she only gave one example herself of uh, a Jew of this time period uh, talking about the experience in America. And he said, uh, or she said, the Frisco kid may not do a great job of entertaining uh, or of documenting the historical past, but it does succeed in capturing a sense of wonder and optimism, a strain of popular American Jewish thought, which was alert was as alluring in 1979 as it had been in 1852. And she only gave one example of somebody writing, uh, actually a, a, uh, a Jew in San Francisco. Um, but from the way she phrased that, uh, this, a strain of popular American Jewish thought, leads me to think that she had more examples of uh, I forgot the, the lead into this was she was talking about when Avram has come down out of the mountains and he says, I think we found the garden of Eden. And then mm-hmm. in the next scene, what a wonderful place America is his enthusiasm, his optimism about America and what it represented and the experience of being there. No one's coming from the next out, village to kill us. Right. <laughs> Even though it started out with him getting, robbed and conned he always had that optimism yeah and uh she viewed that as an example that this is something that uh, jews in america actually experience yeah yeah this is funny i read that article and a few others and the the funny thing is is that the ones that say okay this has some ethnic stereotypes in it they didn't really get into the specifics of that but they went on in great detail into the positive reflections of Jewish religious values. Um, as I said, the, the film is kind of a mixed bag, but the the thing about Avram's character uh, being a source of laughs, it's his Jewishness is never the punchline. And n- I would say 90% of any of the, the Jewish jokes are Jewish in-jokes. I, I, if you um, if you don't really have an appreciation for what it means to be carrying a, a Torah across country, um, then I mean, and this is not just the same as a printed copy of an Old Testament. This is a handwritten sacred centerpiece of the synagogue. Without a connection to what that means, much of the film is pointless. 
I'm not sure I'd say pointless. I mean, even if somebody doesn't really know anything about Jewish culture and the religion, or even if they have no idea what the Torah is, mm -hmm. just seeing the way this guy treats it, uh, the reverence he has for it, his attitude, and the decisions he makes concerning it and show its weight. I mean, Tommy doesn't have a clue what a Torah is. Mm. You know, he's probably never seen it out of its, its velvet case, but he totally understands that, oh, if, of course you rescued your Torah instead of me. Yeah. I've seen the way you treat it. Mm. And so I don't think that you necessarily need to understand Judaism and the, the significance of the Torah to understand, you know, its place in the, uh, in the narrative. Because as you said, Gene Wilder's character does such a great job of showing reverence, respect, and treating this as something sacred, like mm -hmm. a rabbi would. And I loved the moments he, he recovers it, and he's so gentle with it, treating it like it's, it's almost made of glass. Once again, so much of it could have been used as a gag, even that, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to know what a Torah is. Most people in the audience, no idea. I mean, even in the movie, most of them can't pronounce the word right. Um, <laughs> but you know that whatever this is to him, to Alvram, to his faith, this is the most important thing. And we'll get into this more in the character later. But you know, I'll save this for, for when we talk about the character. So I'll, I'll say, okay, that's fair. Um Seeing Avram's reaction is actually pretty pretty grounding in the film. And I remember that first scene where he's getting stripped and robbed and they're throwing his stuff out the back of the wagon. Uh, the first time that the Torah was threatened and just about to be chucked out of the back of the wagon with his boots, I gasped. And you know, partly for what it meant and also wondering, like, how is this film going going to handle that? But seeing Avram's reaction to the whole thing told me what kind of film this was going to be. So mm -hmm. fair. Yeah. His reaction is grounding. And I also want to point out how positive the Christian communities were portrayed in this movie. Mm -hmm. Much like how the Jewish culture is seen as a caricature or a punchline in many movies, Christian groups, Christians themselves are shown sometimes in a less friendly, i.e. sinister light sometimes, the sinister minister and so on. But Avram in his journeys encounters a Amish community, which he, this was funny, he hilariously mistakes for his fellow Hasidic Jews. He sees the dark clothes, the beards, that he's running after them, arms wide open, proclaiming in Yiddish, you know, my brothers, I found you, I've had such troubles. And they have no idea what he's saying. And he goes up to hug one, and the first one that gets him is like, okay, I'll hug you, cool. And, and then he realizes and, those beards aren't speak right. English. <laughs> <laughs> and then he sees the cross and sees the Bible. He's like, oi, vey. What's, has, but what's they, they, funny is that before they focus on the Bible, they focus on somebody's beard, which yeah. isn't right. So, like, you can see, like, the various clues. Like, wait a minute. That garb isn't quite right. The beard isn't quite right. There's a Bible. <laughs> oh, no. yeah, you're realizing this at the same speed that Avram is. And then he passes out from shock and just disappointment. But they take him in. They heal him. They give him rest. And they give him a ride. And they even they give him money out of their own pockets saying, we wish this was more, but mm -hmm. we hope it will help you on your way. And like, I was really worried when that scene started and I realized what was happening. I was like, oh, gosh, where is this going to go? Mm -hmm. I, I had the same feeling, Brian. Yeah. And then this we're presented with this 
these acts of charity and of compassion and understanding and brotherhood. I'm like, oh man, that was that's something you don't see in film very often. No. And I've really, really appreciated it. Well, mm-hmm. I, I had a similar reaction once we were coming to Avram in the monastery where people had taken a vow of silence. And here you have this kind of adorable but bumbling character, and he's causing people to break their vow of silence. And you have this sourpuss abbot that you're like, oh, no, what is going to happen? And then he just kind of takes the moment and and just laughs and, like, Mm -hmm. makes the whole unfortunate thing okay and it's now i don't know if this was intentional but i believe that they pulled the rug out from underneath us i believe that was all planned because as avram is waking up from his peyote fueled (laughs) dance trip with the indians the first person he sees standing over is a monk no offense to this gentleman but that's one creepy looking (laughs) monk i looked for that guy was that is not the first face you want to see coming out of a near coma and well maybe he's nicer when he smiles oh he's smiling it's worse it's yeah. so much worse <laughs> he's sitting across from him at the dinner table and they're all eating and you don't speak okay i'm sorry no questions no questions i apologize <laughs> salt i need salt and <laughs> gets one to talk there's that moment of shock and the head monk hasn't spoken in decades just starts to laugh and so do others it's a heartwarming scene I feel like that they pulled a little bit of a gotcha on the audience and I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Of all people to choose for, uh, for the monk, the guy's name is Vincent Chav- Chavelli. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've, you've seen him before. I mean, he's, he's, a all over the place. he's in a lot of stuff, but he does look just like not, there's not the face you want to wake up to. No. <laughs> all respect to this gentleman, but and I'm sure they did this on purpose, but that is one creepy looking dude. Yep. Probably the nicest guy in the world, but yeah. But as I said before, we see an Amish community, a Catholic monastery, and they both portrayed, as you said, Brian, charity, courtesy, friendliness, and love to these wayward travelers, as we should do as Christians. And your portrayal of them, well done. I think that the only group that isn't portrayed positively in this group is robbers. I think that's a... (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not really, it's not really a creed or anything. So yeah, I I think the film gets a pass there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shall we move on to the characters themselves? Sure. I think we should. Mm -hmm. Let's start off with the Schlemiel. Yes. (laughs) Now the Schlemiel is an archetype in Yiddish literature. And I had to look this up a little bit and Avram doesn't fit it perfectly, but it's what he is. The characters is kind of trying to evoke this bumbling fool thing things are going to go wrong for him things are always going to go wrong for the schlemiel but he maintains this uh optimism as i mentioned before and wherever he goes we've we've talked about the uh the pennsylvania dutch and the the monks he also encounters a uh a tribe of native americans always these uh subcultures on the outside uh and even uh tommy himself the the bank robber is an outsider by choice but still somebody on the outside and wherever he goes, when he falls into these groups, he, he perseveres in his own culture and beliefs. He's never mm-hmm. adopt. He's never going along to get along as the, the saying goes, never adopting the, the dominant behavioral system in order to, to fit in. He's always remaining true to who he is and what he is. 
I think that's one of the redeeming values of this film is while he's a fool, his belief in tradition remains central to nearly every one of his misadventures. And in the end, the film portrays that as a positive thing. And rather than it being the thing that gets in the way of his progress, it is his adherence uh, to these values that doesn't necessarily allow him the way out, but it, it makes him who he is as he navigates the way out. Right. His personal struggle isn't about overcoming his religion the, as an obstacle to what's happening, but it's about maintaining those convictions when everything sensible says he should abandon them. Mm -hmm. He's being chased by a posse. Of yeah. course he should ride the uh, horse, but it's the Sabbath. <laughs> Brian, you pointed out as a, a, a Western trope earlier, the dark night of the soul that Avram experiences. And at the end of the movie, we see that he's after the fight on the beach where he saves his friend, but, you know, actually kills one of the robbers that has been popping up here and there throughout the movie. You see him don Tommy's clothes and drop off the Torah and go back to a bar. And I'm like, what is he doing? And he goes on about how he can't be a rabbi anymore, which starts a big old argument with him and Tommy. We'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk more about Tommy's response to that later. But he said, I can't be a rabbi anymore because one of the bad guys had thrown the Torah into a fire and he went to save it by, by doing so left his friend open to be shot. And he says, whatever I am, I can't be a rabbi. I saved you because I cared more about the Torah than my best friend's life. I cared more about a piece of paper than you. So whatever I'm going to be, I can't be a rabbi. And that, that was a, a really fantastic speech. Yeah. And I feel like Gene Wilder has earned his place in history with movies such as Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the producers, that Western movie that will not be named, <laughs> and so many more. But I feel that sometimes he doesn't get enough credit. Mm. I mean, he's mostly looked at for his comedy chops. But like so many really great comedic actors, when he turns on the drama, mm. he is so good at it. Yeah. I mean, you don't just hear the breaking in his words of the sorrow that he's feeling. You see it in his eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a real resonance there. You sympathize with this man. And I could only think, how am I feeling this much in a movie like this? <laughs> <laughs> it was such a powerful scene that I was not expecting. Yeah, his performance really saves this movie from being insignificant that conversation and that uh crisis that he has is the place where i think the western motifs show up most strongly because as mm. i've said before the the main thing in the western is the conflict between civilization and the violent man and throughout all of this avram has been the representation of civilization he's his best friend is a gunslinger a bank robber he's the the violence the one that cannot live in community but the rabbi is integral to a community. And yet he has this moment where he takes a life. And now suddenly he's on the outside of that. And he puts on the cowboy's coat. And he tries hilariously to pretend he is from the Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and his ability to do that weird blended accent was just astounding. I, I love that whole scene. But that's where the, the Western motif showed up. And his having to, to synthesize what he has done with who he is. And we get to the end of the movie in, in which 
you know, we don't know which way this apparent gunfight's going to go. Is he going to pull out the gun? Is he going to shoot this guy? We don't know. He doesn't know. And I have no idea where I was leading with that. <laughs> All this to say that Gene Wilder did a, did a phenomenal job as we came to the climax of this film. Yes, mm-hmm. he really, really did. And I think, Mike, were you about to shift us toward Tommy? Yeah, I was going to say, I think that especially as we're talking about this dynamic in the climax, we, we kind of have to talk about Tommy because this is not just Avram's film. Like, mm-hmm. without Tommy, this film would have probably died with a rattlesnake bite somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Well, he would have turned right at that tree and probably ended up in Canada. <laughs> like, he would he would have had no tukas to follow. <laughs> <laughs> So Tommy is, as we said, a bank robber. He's evidently a savant with a gun because he's shooting fish out of the water from 40 yards away (laughs) right next to Avram. Yeah, Avram should have had two or three or 18 more belly buttons. Right. (laughs) And yet, so he's, he's a person who lives by violence. I mean, the first thing that we see him do in the movie is rob a train. And yet he seems to take great pains to avoid actually hurting anybody. He does shoot one person. But, you know, even at the, the climax of the film, you know, he respects Avram's sensibilities and he doesn't kill Matthew. Then those are the same conditions he had told Avram to kill someone. Mm-hmm. Like there's somebody who's going for a gun. He's reaching for the gun. If he gets the gun, he's going to shoot you. And instead of shooting the guy, he shoots the gun away from the guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that he can do. But there's no way Avram would have been able to shoot the gun. I mean, I'm glad that the barrel was pointed the right way when Avram had it. (laughs) Tommy's transformation to somebody who cares about something is really remarkable in this film. At first, he's he's just profiteering. Like, he comes in, he robs a train. He just so happens to find Avram and, you know, says, go that way. And then he's like, no, no, follow me and I'll, I'll show you the way. And then Avram does these things that seem absolutely absurd to Tommy. Like, okay, there are people chasing after us who are going to kill us. It's the Sabbath. I'm not going to break the Sabbath. So I'm not going to ride my horse to escape them. Or, well, I dropped the Torah somewhere on that plane as we were being chased by Native Americans. So I need to go back to pick up the Torah, uh, where those same said Native Americans are probably going to capture and kill us. And Every time he says, well, you go ahead and do insert crazy thing here, but there's no way I'm gonna. And that is the surest fire way that you know that Tommy is going to do something. (laughs) Like over and over again, the sensible thing is to leave this crazy rabbi to just go and get killed. But Tommy seems to need this companion just as much as Avram does. And he says at the end of the movie, I've never had a best friend. He's just like any romantic comedy. These these guys complete each other. They need each other because alone, they're half a person. Alone, they're, they're not worth following, not worth watching. Hmm. But together, Tommy is brought into community by Avram. Avram is taught, you know, his cowboy wisdom. He's, he's got somebody that he can rely upon. And that in some way relies upon him, something he's not had, because he is the shlemiel. He is the person who's the butt of every joke. He is the one who's going to spill the soup every time. And he needs his, uh, what's the uh, the other, the shlemiel's 
partner. Uh, ah, I had this and I, I can't remember it now. But there's the guy that the soup's going to get spilled on. Mm. And so that's going to be Tommy. They come as a set. The whole evolution to this to this final place where Tommy is somebody who needs to believe in something. And it's it's interesting. It's not for himself. He really needs Avram to be the person that Tommy sees him as. Like there is when Avram is having his crisis of faith, I can't be a rabbi. But the conversation is you are a rabbi. I mean, this is something that he is just fiercely proclaiming like he needs he needs him to be the rabbi and i don't think that's entirely selfish i don't think it's necessarily tommy needs him to be the rabbi but he's seeing his friend in pain Mm. and he's like you're gonna throw away everything that you are i can't let you my friend go through that i Mm. can't bring you into my world and even when avram explains to him i tried to save the torah instead of saving you and I wonder if Tommy really understood the depth of what Auburn was trying to explain. But either way, Tommy looked at him and very sincerely said, I forgive you. Yeah. And the way he says it, it it's clear he didn't even consider that to be something that needed forgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what you're going to do because you are the rabbi and this, this Torah thing is so important to you. We've seen it being so important to you. Of course you're going to save it. For as much as the movie shows Tommy's, as you said, Western wisdom and also his practical experience, you assume that when they're out in the wild, he's going to be the one kind of in the lead, except for when Auburn is leading them through a snowstorm. (laughs) But then we get the moment where when they're being chased by the posse and Auburn goes, oh, good, they're gone. Four days, we're clear. Who are those guys? And it's Indians. (laughs) And they get captured by Indians. And the table gets flipped. Tommy now is actually panicking. Like, he knows what's coming. He's been telling us in no small amount of detail what will happen to them if they're captured by Indians. Now they are. And he's having a moment. Avram, though, is playing it cool. And he is the one, through his unshakable faith, who saves them. That is an interesting reversal that Tommy becomes quite obviously the fool, Mm -hmm. desperately saying anything that he thinks that will save his life. And everyone in the scene can see right through it, but they can also see, uh, see Avram's sincerity. So I think that's, that's really, really impressive. I also really enjoyed the talk of who God is between (laughs) Avram and the Indian chief. He's the only God. Why can't he make it rain? He can make it rain. He's not going to do it right now. He talks about what God has given us, but he's not going to give us rain. That's not what he does. Hear the crack of thunder, the boom. But (laughs) sometimes sometimes he he changes changes his his mind. mind. (laughs) (laughs) No one else could have delivered that so effectively. Oh, so do we have any final thoughts on this movie? I think that pretty well wraps it. I don't think there's any point in spending time talking about the antagonists. They were just one note. Yeah. yeah they were cardboard cutouts. I think they were effective, creepy, bullying robber archetypes. Mm-hmm. And with the scene in the saloon where Avram sees one of them wearing the, the part of the... I'm completely unfamiliar with 
uh, what it was that he stole. It was part of the Torah. It was a silver adornment, and he was wearing it. Avram goes up, snatches it from his neck, walks away and kisses it, and then tries to fight them. Not his smartest moment, but, you know, one of his bravest. But it set up the whole being saved by Tommy dynamic. So, anyway, that's enough that should be said about the robbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, anything else? Uh, I say that I would give this film um, four out of six shooters. <laughs> <laughs> then I think that that will lead us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what uh, Meshuggah plan do you have for us this episode? Well, I'd say that uh, we live in a pretty big country. Uh, so there's San Francisco and then there's every place else. I say that we just give it the zombies san francisco and just keep them there we'll build starfleet academy someplace else it's it's a big country we'll figure it out and on that note that will wrap up this episode thank you all for listening in make sure you check us out on all the social media places uh well, actually not all of them just uh, facebook.com slash geek at arms and mike what's our twitter we are arms geek on twitter give us a like leave us a review it does help the podcast And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Adios very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Real quickly, I can't tell who, but someone's got a lot of background noise oh, in their mic. Probably my air conditioner. I'll go turn it off. No, no, no. I mean, it's too bloody hot outside, man. Leave it on. I'm going to mute just in case, just to see if that's me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's me. No, it's it's Brian's. Okay. No, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was your AC, man. My apologies. Yeah, my thing is ridiculously loud. I'm in the basement, so I can sweat it out for a little while. Geek at Arms listeners, we're starting a GoFundMe for a ceiling fan for Brian. (laughs) I could turn on my fan, but it's even louder. (laughs) We're going to buy a year's supply of blocks of ice for Brian to sit on so he (laughs) can turn everything else off. Just imagining that throne. (laughs) We'll be changing the name of the podcast to the Soggy Bottom Boys. (laughs) 